Uh, If you have a Bible, as I mentioned, you can turn to the book of Ruth, chapter 2. Book of Ruth, chapter 2. And just to remind you, uh, I don't know if you guys are big fans of TV shows, if you watch, but at the beginning of every TV show, um, the episode will say, like, previously on blank. So we're going to say previously in the book of Ruth. Remember, the book of Ruth is this story that's found in the Old Testament it's it's like a it's like an episode it's like a story that's put together. Um, it's broken up into four chapters. So we're going to watch four episodes of this mini series on the book of Ruth. And we saw in Ruth chapter one that God's we saw God's sovereignty over our sorrow, didn't we? We saw God's sovereignty over our sorrow. This is, this story takes place. In the book of it takes place during the time of the book of the Judges, and this was the time when the people were doing what was right in their own eyes, not following the Lord, and we're focused on these two ladies, Naomi and Ruth the Moabite, who were left alone after their husbands had died. Um, Ruth was Naomi's daughter-in-law. Um, Ruth had married Naomi's son, and both both Naomi's husband and Ruth husband Ruth's husband died. A widowed Moabite would likely have not fared very well among the Israelites at this time. But we were reminded that even in the most chaotic moments in life and in history, God is still in charge. He's still working in the background to bring about his glory and our good. And the shape of God's sovereignty we talked about often looks like a setback that is really a setup for something amazing that God is about to do. Last week, we got to really focus on the, the setback, right? We saw Ruth, uh, sorry, saw Naomi at the end of that chapter renaming herself. Naomi means pleasant, but she said, I'm not pleasant, I'm bitter. So she names herself Mara, which is the Hebrew word for bitter. So we were left at the end of last chapter with Naomi in a bitter situation. But now, that was the setback. Now we get to see the setup, the rest of this book. Have you ever been been in a situation where you've just been over-blessed with an abundance of blessing you didn't even know what to do with? Well, we kind of had that problem with our Operation Christmas Child this year. Uh, you guys were so faithful to bring items for that, that as the ladies were, were packing, we planned, we hoped to do 50 boxes, and we thought maybe that's a little bit of a stretch, but we have way more stuff than we ever thought we would, we would have because God has over-blessed over us in, in one sense. He's given us more than we need, more than we could want. And I think that's the picture that we see in the book of Ruth, chapter 2 today, that God's that God shows lavish, overwhelming kindness to us, specifically to the defenseless and the weak outsider. So let's pick up in Ruth chapter two. And as we did uh, last week, we're gonna read a chunk, stop and talk about it. Read a chunk, stop and talk about it. Um, But as we walk through this, we're first gonna see Ruth's initiative. Then we're gonna, point number two, we're gonna see Boaz's kindness. More on Boaz in a moment. And then finally, we're gonna end with Naomi's reaction. So Ruth's initiative, Boaz's kindness, and Naomi's reaction. Let's read Ruth chapter two, verses one through seven. It says this, now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So we see Boaz introduced here in verse one. And the scene opens up, and you can imagine this. Um, Episode one had just ended, episode two starts, and you see this man, this well-kept, put-together dude, walking through a field. 
He's clearly got money and he's clearly got influence because this is his field, but he's a kind man greeting the workers as he walks through the field, asking them if they're doing okay, if they need anything, if they need a drink or need to take a break. And as the camera pans out from this guy, you see the sign for his family farm. And you notice that the sign has the same last name as Elimelech. This is one of Elimelech's relatives. This is somebody who's related to Naomi and therefore by marriage related to Ruth as well. And we see that Boaz is described as a worthy man in this, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. The word worthy is just a generic term um, that's used to, to describe somebody of honor or influence in a culture. It's a word that was described of Gideon in the book of Judges, but we find out that Boaz is nothing like Gideon, right? Gideon was one of the judges that God raised up and gave him the sword to lead the people of Israel in battle against their enemies, but Boaz is a different kind of worthy. He's not this mighty warrior kind of worthy. He's more of the, the hometown good guy that, that, that lives a righteous life. And we're reminded that the book of Ruth is, is meant to show us a contrast to the book of Judges. It's a contrast to the book of Judges. Instead of people doing what was right in their own eyes, we see in the book of Ruth people doing what was right in the Lord's eyes. That's why Boaz is called a worthy man. And the focus quickly shifts back to our main ladies after verse 1. And we see this initiative of Ruth. Picking up in verse 2, it says, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to a part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from uh, Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. So we see uh, Naomi, after being... Uh, sorry, not Naomi, Ruth, after they'd settled down and she told Naomi, hey, I'm going to go hang out and I'm going to go glean in the field. So we learn a few things about Naomi here. First, we learn that Naomi is a go-getter. She's a go, or sorry, I keep saying Naomi. Ruth is a go-getter. Ruth is a go-getter. She's going to glean. This was a pr- common practice in this culture. After the workers would go through a field and collect all the main harvest, there'd be stuff left over. You can imagine as they're shaking the ears of corn, trying to get those to fall off and pick those up, there'd be some things left over on the ground. So Ruth was going through and picking up the little bits of scrap that were left over by the workers. This was actually something that God's law made provision for. In Deuteronomy 24, you don't have to turn there, but just note this, Deuteronomy 24, it says this. When you, this is God speaking to the Israelites, telling them how to, how to live their lives and do, and do things. He says, when you reap your harvest in the field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow that the Lord your God may bless you in all your work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather grapes in your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. You shall, it shall be for the foreigner and the fatherless and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. So we see in this that God has a heart for the outsider. He commanded it. He built it into his law 
in some sense, kind of like a welfare program. For those who were unable to provide for themselves, the, the workers were meant to leave the gleanings, leave the things on the ground so that the people could come in after them. God has a heart for the weak, the defenseless, and the outsider. And she doesn't stop working. We find out later on in verse 7 uh, until she started in the morning and didn't stop all evening, all day, except for one time. So we see that Ruth is a go-getter, but Ruth is also a shrewd operator. Gleaning was allowed, like she could legally do that. It was fine for her to do that. But she knew, I'm a Moabite, and I need to uh, realize that not everybody's going to be happy to see me and be kind to me. Just because God commands it doesn't mean God's people always do it, unfortunately. So she realizes she needs to go find a place where she'll be... uh, People will see her with favor because she is a Moabite. Actually, the narrator is throwing it in your face three times in this section. In verse two, he says, and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi. Later on in verse six, it mentions her as being a Moabite from Moab. It's like, the, we're like, we get it. She's a Moabite. You don't have to say it again. So, but Ruth knows that not everybody's gonna be welcoming to her, but she goes and finds a place where she can work. She knows she needs to find somewhere and work for somebody that's gonna have favor on her. So we pick up again in verse four. It says, and behold, Boaz, or sorry, sorry, verse five. It said, then Boaz said to his young men who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, uh, she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So the, the language in this passage is interesting, uh, especially around verse three, where it says that she happened to come to a part of the field belonging to Boaz. This language is interesting because it's really, it, we, we see it, it says, you know, she happened upon, but it's a funny way of saying things. It literally says her chance chanced upon the allotment of Boaz. So her, she, another way of saying that, you could say as luck turned out, she ended up on Boaz's field. Now this is interesting because Israelites don't really have this concept of luck in their culture. For example, Proverbs 16.33 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but its decision is from the Lord. A lot is like, you could say in our language, a dice. The dice is rolled, but God determines how it lands. So they, they attribute every small random chance to the Lord. There is no luck for the Israelite, but the Israelite writer here says, Ruth lucked out and ended up on Boaz's field. So I think what the author's doing by saying that basically Ruth was lucky is to use a little bit of irony and maybe a little bit of sarcasm as well. Um, as one who is, is, is astute in, in sarcasm, I recognize this. Ruth, the author's saying Ruth just happened to feel like gleaning that morning and she just happened to pick a field on that side of town and she just happened to select a field owned by Boaz, her mother-in-law's family member. And she just happened to work on a day that Boaz showed up to his field. Do you see it? The author is saying, ironically, God is all over the place in this. She didn't just happen to do any of that. God directed her there. God was guiding the smallest, 
mundane, seemingly pointless decisions Ruth was making to put her exactly where she was meant to be that day. So friends, this morning, I hope you realize that there's no such thing as luck in your life. The hand of God is in the smallest nooks and crannies of your seemingly pointless, mundane decisions that you make. There is no chance encounters. There are no coincidental meanings. God is orchestrating it all according to his cosmic plan and for, his, for our good and for his glory. You don't just happen to stand next to somebody in the line at Walmart or Starbucks. You don't just happen to move into your house next to that neighbor. You don't just happen to do anything. You don't just happen to get a scan or an x-ray for your teeth that reveals something going on in your head. You don't just happen to come upon these things physically. Nothing just happens in your life. God is orchestrating it and ordaining it. From Ruth's perspective, she just happened to pick a random field. Maybe she was walking and thought, hey, there's a dog by that field. I'm afraid of dogs. I don't want to go there. Uh, this field looks unkept. I don't want to go there. And she just was like, kept going until she found, oh, I guess this field's going to do. From Ruth's perspective, it was luck. But from our perspective in the story, we know that God had placed Ruth right there in front of Boaz in his field for a reason. And he takes notice. So we've seen Ruth's initiative. Now we get to look at Boaz's kindness in verses 8 through 16. Boaz's kindness. Let's read verses 8 through 13 real quick. It says, And then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close by my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I'm a foreigner? Boaz answered her, All that you have uh, done for your mother-in-law since her death, the death of her husband, has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before." And the Lord may the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And she said to him, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, and you have comforted me and have spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. So we see that Boaz invites Ruth to work in his field continually. He even says, hang out with the young lady. So he says, uh, he gives her companionship with the young ladies. Um, that Being a lady who had never been to Israel, she was from Moab, right? She married her husband in Moab and then was brought here. She finds companionship with these young ladies. She finds protection from the young men. He had ordered them, do not touch her, leave her alone, uh, protect her in this time. And she finds provision from these wells. When you're thirsty... Get some water that the guys draw for you, which would not have been a common thing for the men to draw for the women or for an Israelite to draw for a foreigner. But she gets that. And Ruth's reaction is this. She, uh, this is not how foreigners are treated. Boaz is showing kindness to a younger, weaker, vulnerable foreigner. And he's bestowing dignity on her 
that she may have never received. He's not treating her like many in this situation would. Instead, he's doing, he, instead he's not doing what might be right in his own eyes. He's doing what the Lord had commanded him to do, to care for the foreigner and the sojourner. So he invites Ruth to, to, to just take all that she needs from the field. Not only does he let her glean in his field, he also invites Ruth to dine at his table. Look at verses 14 and 16. It says, And at mealtime Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat by the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young man, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some of the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So at lunchtime, everybody comes and sits down at the table. Boaz has made sure that everybody's taken care of. But it seems like Ruth is standing off in the distance a little bit, not joining the people as would be customary because she's a foreigner, right? They won't eat with the Israelites or the Israelites won't let them. But Boaz says to Ruth, the Moabite, pull up a chair, have some of this bread. Oh, and dip it in the wine. That makes it taste so much better. And try some of these roasted barley chips. They're just perfect. Boaz turns this place into an olive garden, right? It, it is bottomless breadsticks at Boaz's table. And she, she, is, she is just getting after it. And she eats, verse 14, until she is satisfied. So much so that she has some left over. Everybody that's been on date night to Olive Garden or wherever it might be goes home with a, maybe a small piece of meat. But you stuff some of those breadsticks in that box, right? Because they're free. You might as well have dinner tomorrow as well. So Ruth sits down at this table and gets food that maybe she hasn't eaten in such a long time, maybe never. Good food, bread and wine and roasted barley. She eats it all and she is satisfied. This may have been the first real meal that Ruth had had in a long time, being a widow. So her belly was full and satisfied, so much so that she had to take it to go box. But I'm betting not just her belly was full, I bet her heart was full as well. Being shown kindness from an absolute stranger, being brought into a group of people to say, hey, eat with us, have some food with us, talk with us. Something she probably hadn't experienced. And after she gets up to go back to work, Boaz doesn't just let her go walk off. He says to his workers, remember gleaning is you pick up what's left over. Boaz says, hey, intentionally drop some of those bales and leave them for, for, for Ruth so that she has so much. What's interesting here is that we are starting to see Boaz live up to that worthy title that he had, right? Boaz was described as worthy at the beginning of this book. And the, remember, the book of Ruth takes place within the book of Judges. When everybody's doing what was right in their own eyes, but Boaz is not. Remember, kindness to outsiders who entered Israel was commanded by God in the law, and Boaz chooses to obey that law. He could have made up a lot of reasons why he doesn't need to show kindness to her. She's a Moabite. And Moabites are just going to do Moabite things. You know how they are. Her husband died and he was a traitor. He left Israel and went to a foreign country. Why would we show kindness to her? She probably did something to get herself into this mess. 
The list of excuses go on and on. There are other fields that she could go to. Why does she need to glean in my field? Why should I help her? Boaz could have made a lot of excuses as to why he shouldn't help somebody in need. But Boaz doesn't make those excuses. He sees a poor, weak, vulnerable woman whom he knows is taking care of another poor, weak, and vulnerable older woman And he shows this one-sided kindness to her. One-sided kindness. What that means is allowing Ruth to to glean in his fields is not going to benefit him financially at all. It's not like she's paying him some kind of tax or dividend for doing that. He benefits nothing from her doing that. There's no tax write-offs for him. And being so kind to her probably was causing some of his other workers to whisper behind his back. Can you believe he's talking to her? Can you believe that? He doesn't even know her and he's letting her come and work. We've been working with him for a long time and he's being such so nice to her. There's probably some social repercussion that comes along with this. But in Boaz, I believe that we're meant to see this kindness of God. Uh, We're supposed to see this kindness is pointing us to something higher in him. Let's see how Naomi uh, feels about this whole experience. So we've seen Ruth's initiative, Boaz's kindness. And now let's look how Naomi reacts to all of this. Picking up in verse 17. Picking up in verse 17. We see Ruth come home and tell uh, Naomi about her day. Verse 17 says, so she, glean, uh, so she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law, uh, her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her the food that was left over from after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where did you work? Blessed is the man who took notice of you. She told her mother-in-law, whom she'd worked with, the man's name uh, with whom I work today is Boaz. So Ruth finishes up her work for the day. She cleans up all the barley. She gets off all the, the extra stuff from the barley, packs it up, and she heads home, busts through the door of this little one-room studio that they had there in the, in the town of Bethlehem. And she starts gushing about this day that she had. So she slams this big bag of barley on the table and it's actually an ephah of barley. Now, I know you guys don't measure an ephah, neither do I. You look it up and there's some a little bit of debate about how big an ephah is, but it was at least somewhere between 30 to 50 pounds. So we find out that Ruth is yoked. She is buff enough to carry 30 to 50 pounds from the, from the field back into town. And it's not like she's just carrying a 45-pound plate like you do in the, in the weight room, right? It's a sack of barley. It's, it's dead weight. It's, it's uncomfortable. She's either buff or she talks somebody into carrying it for her. But either way, she's resourceful. She carries this massive bag of barley home, slams it on the table. Naomi's eyes get big. And she also says, hey, I also have this to-go box and look at this food. You should try some of this. Make sure you di- make sure you dip the bread into the wine as well. That's how you really get the good flavor. She is uh, just gushing about this abundant uh, blessing that she has received uh, from this man. And so Naomi's like, what, where in the world did you go today? How did you get this much? And so she says, I, I work for this guy named Boaz. I happened onto his field. And Naomi is now starting to put things together. Remember what Naomi was at the end of chapter one? Broken. She was bitter. 
Her bitterness had blinded her to all the goodness that was around her in chapter one. Her bitterness blinded her. Her sorrow had blinded her. But now she's starting to put things together. She recognizes Boaz's name and says, I know that man. As a matter of fact, he was my husband's whatever cousin once removed, whatever it is. He is related to uh, Elimelech. He is his cousin. He's from his clan. So she recognizes Boaz's name, but even more than that, she recognized God's kindness. God's kindness. Be a Bible nerd with me real quick. This word kindness that's spoken of here and referred to how Boaz act, this is the word hesed. Hesed. It's one word in the Hebrew that can't really be translated perfectly into one word in English. But it means something like this loving kindness, it's mercy, it's loyalty and faithfulness with the implications of being divine, one-sided, one-sided favor. It's all of that wrapped up into one word. That's why some of your translations say mercy. Some of your other translations say loving kindness. Uh, other translations will even say hey, faithfulness, because it's all of these things wrapped up into one word, hesed. It's this loving kindness, this loyal faithfulness. And Naomi sees Boaz's actions as God's blessing, as God's hesed, his faithful, loving kindness. In this story, we are supposed to marvel at the kindness of the Lord the same way that Naomi and Ruth marvel at the kindness of Boaz. Ruth and Naomi are utterly undeserving. They have, probably don't have much skill as far as being able to work for Boaz. They didn't earn it. They're, 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 uh, she's a Moabite. She should not be blessed by Boaz. But Boaz chooses in a one-sided fashion to bless Ruth and thereby bless Naomi. So as we think about this story, we're supposed to see Boaz's uh, kindness to Ruth and to Naomi as God's kindness. So when we apply this to our lives, we need to remember God's loving kindness and we need to be amazed. We need to remember God's loving kindness and be amazed because he shows us kindness in ways all the time. Just think about your salvation alone. As you were wandering through life, you didn't just stumble upon Christ. You didn't just happen to find the Lord. He put you in the perfect place to where you would hear about Christ, that you would hear about Christ. I just cannot think about uh, this without thinking about my life. I grew up in Pitcher for the first few years of my life, but my family moved over here and we just happened to move into a house catty corner to this block. And my mom just happened uh, to shop at, uh, or so, sorry, my grandma just happened to shop over here at Starcash Grocery. I just happened to become friends with a kid that went to church here. He just happened to invite me to Vacation Bible School. All this stuff just happened in my life. But as we look back, sometimes uh, providence is best understood in retrospect. It means you understand God's sovereignty when you look back on it and realize there was nothing just happening in my life. And I'm thinking, uh, and all that to say, I ended up coming to Vacation Bible School and the Lord saved me through that. None of you just happened onto the Lord. God was putting you in the perfect place you needed to be in order for you to know the Lord. The circumstances surrounding your testimony, whether it happened at Commerce First or uh, the other side of the world, wherever you were when you came to know the Lord, the circumstances surrounding that was God putting you in the perfect place for you to come to know him. 
You were kind of like Ruth, wandering through life, and God put you where you needed to be so that he could show you lavish, unhindered, one-sided grace. And he's going to be faithful to that no matter what because it's a never-ending loving kindness that will be faithful to you in the darkest moments of life. So we need to remember that in our salvation, that God's loving kindness, that hesed love is shown to us in salvation. But it's also shown to us in our every single day life. Remember God's loving kindness to you in the smallest things that you do. When you sit down at a meal, you should pray. The Bible doesn't say, hey, you got to pray five seconds before every meal. It doesn't say that. But you need to have the attitude and realize the meal that you're about to eat, you are not guaranteed that. It feels like it living in this country, but food is not guaranteed. And the food that you have before you, whether it's mac and che- boxed mac and cheese at home or it's Olive Garden breadsticks, whatever it is, know that that food is not guaranteed and you should thank the Lord for it. Praise God every time you're able to fill up your tank of gas, whether it costs you three bucks or five bucks, right, in California. Praise God that you can fill up that gas tank. Praise Him this Christmas when you open up Christmas gifts with your family. Every time you open the door and you see your wife and your children sitting at home, in your heart you need to fall to your knees and say with root, why have I found favor in your eyes, Lord? Why am I blessed with all the good things that you have given me? And we should not take these things for granted. We should not take them for granted. Remember God's loving kindness, his hesed love, and be amazed. But second application we can make is reflect God's loving kindness to others. Remember God's loving kindness to you, but you also need to reflect that loving kindness to others, particularly those who are lowly and undeserving. Don't just help those who can help you in return. Help those who can't give you anything back in return. Stop making excuses about who you can help. There are a lot of times we get put into situations where it would be unsafe to help somebody in need. Maybe you're traveling with your family and you've got the kids in the back and there's some dude walking on the side of the road. It's probably not wise for you to pick him up. That's okay. But there's lots of times in our, in our lives where we're in a position to help somebody in need and we make all kinds of excuses as to why we don't need to help them. They got themselves into that position. There's other places they can go. Isn't there government assistance for them? We have all kinds of debates about how to help the poor around us. But as Christians, we need to remove ourselves from these debates between conservatives and liberals about how to take care of poor people or not. We've got to remove ourselves from that and say, how can I today in my life help the people that God has happened to bring into my sphere? There's people that God's going to bring into your circle who are, help, who are helpless, vulnerable, and you need to show God's hesed, loving kindness to them. As a church, we should be intentional, but how is it that we can help the people that come and knock on our door for help in the middle of the week? How can we be helping those people who are going to be cold this winter? How can we feed people who might not get fed? Praise God that this church has done that on so many occasions. Every Wednesday night throughout the past five years, we have provided meals for kiddos that might not have had a good meal at home. There's been times when we fed 100 kids back there 
Literally 100, I'm not exaggerating, over 100 kids sitting back there eating food that our church has intentionally said, let's help the hurting and let's help the kids that might not have that. Praise God that we've done that. What we're doing through Operation Christmas Child is another small picture of that, saying, hey, let's buy toys and send them to people so that they can have this gift on, on, on I don't doubt that they'll go on Christmas Day because this takes a long time for boxes to get around the world. But whenever they receive this Christmas gift, it's just a small act of kindness for us to say, hey, we've been given a gift in Christ. We want to give you a gift as well. And when they give those, they also provide all kinds of gospel material as well. So praise God that we as a church have done this, that we've had a heart for the hurting. But pray, First Baptist Church, that we would be a people who would seek even more to help those who are in need, just like our God has done for us. And all these blessings that we see in Ruth and Naomi's life are just the beginning. God's not even done blessing Ruth and Naomi. Naomi tells Ruth to continue to work in, continue to work in Boaz's field because she's going to be safe. And she also tells him that he is one of their redeemers. Verse 20 says this, And Naomi said to the daughter-in-law Ruth, May he be blessed referring to uh, Boaz, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness, Hesed, has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. A redeemer is somebody who is in a family who's meant to help out another family member in a time of trial. And this sets up the stage for chapter three. So stay tuned for next week's episode of Ruth. But as we close this morning, remember that God is at work in the smallest mundane parts of our life. And he does so for the sake of spreading his hesed, loving kindness to those who are his people and to those who are not his people, to the least of the least. And may we be a people who are living in God's lavish, uh, lavish grace and spreading it as much as we can. Let's pray.